Uh, this morning we are moving into the uh, 16th Psalm. We've been uh, walking through some of the Psalms. We'll just hit you know, a couple dozen of them uh, in the next couple of months. Wanted to bump into Psalm 16 and to say as we come to these, every time I, I spend time in the Psalms that way, we need to know that as we read, I've said before that I, I think prayer is really nothing more than, uh, <clears throat> than, than the outpouring of our, what's in our souls. That prayer is nothing really but desire, uh, verbalized. So our prayer life in many ways simply articulates and expresses or reveals what's in there. And that our praying should be that verbalizing, that expressing. And, and in the Psalms, we have these, this beautiful window into the soul of, in, in this case, David, a man after God's own heart. We have this window into what's in his soul as it comes out, as his desire is poured forth in prayer. A man who's seeking after God, who loves the Lord his God. And there's times when I come to some of these and they're... Uh, There's so much that is caught rather than taught. You know, there's so much as we come alongside the prayers of David and some of these other prayers that God has given us by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's like standing near a bonfire. Or at least it should be. You know, where we step close and put out our hands and we are warmed and, and we catch, in a sense, the flame the fire of these guys and their love for, him, for God and the way that they express. And I hope in, as we go through that, we, that you are learning to pray in a sense. As we not only can take His prayers and own them for ourselves, but we're learning to pray, to express our own souls, to express what's in there. Our desire and our passion given word as we reach out to God. And David, Psalm 16, well, let's, let's read it. Psalm 16, the Word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. And I will not take their names on my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me, and because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. For you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning because it is living and true. And here you speak and here you teach us to speak. Father, open our souls that we might catch fire. That we might warm at the flame of David's passion. That we might be kindled into a passion of our own. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
David opens his psalm, he really has only one request to make in his prayer. Sometimes our prayers are nothing but requests, but we have to sometimes balance those things out. David has one simple request, and it opens the psalm, preserve me. That's the only thing he asks for, per se, in the whole psalm. And in fact, the rest of the psalm is a rehearsing or a recounting or a remembering of all that God is to David, of his relationship with the Lord, and why he can have confidence that God will answer that prayer. Preserve me, O God. And God will answer that prayer. The whole psalm is a description then of David's relationship with God. The rich blessings that come from knowing his God. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I've taken refuge in you, so I'm I'm trusting in you. God says that those who put their trust in me will not be put to shame. Preserve me, O God, because I have done that. I have put my trust in you. I have made you my refuge. You're the place that I come to hide my soul. You're the place that I run to for shelter and for safety. When I am afraid, when I am broken, when I am in pain, when I am in distress, You are the place I go. You are where I run. I have put my trust in You. I find my refuge in You. So preserve me. I lift my soul to You. And then he goes on, he says, it's like a confession of faith, really, in verse 2. I say to Yahweh, remember when it says Lord in all caps, it's God's name in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And you are my Lord, my Adonai. And we talked about that last couple times ago. Adonai, that is uh, the way we use Lord in the New Testament, where Kurios, Jesus is Lord, He is Adonai. It's just that generic... He is my Lord. So David makes this confession. Yahweh, covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, You are my Lord. Preserve me. Because I have put my faith in You. I have put my trust in You. I have bowed my knee to You as my Lord. As my God. As my King. As my Sovereign. I belong to You. I serve You. I want to live for You. So preserve me, O Lord. And then he says, as part of that confession, I've made Yahweh my Lord. Lord, I have no good apart from You. And when that becomes true for us, it can change everything. When that becomes the real expression of our souls, again, pouring out what's in, That apart from you, I have no good thing. You are my most valuable treasure. There is nothing, when I have you, I need nothing else. In this life or the next, ultimately, you are the great treasure of my life. I will seek you above all else. In Psalm 73, uh, he says it another way, it's there. Whom have I in heaven but You? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. Right? You're the only one. Yahweh, You are the Lord. There's no one else in heaven to claim. I have claimed You. And because I have You, there is nothing else on earth that I desire more than I desire You. In other words, when you have the Creator, what is the creation? 
All right, when you have the giver, you know, what are the gifts? So he has Yahweh as his Lord. He has no good apart from him. And he goes on from there to confess. Then, Lord, um, I have no other people but your people. And I have no other God but you. I am loyal. Loyal in your kingdom. Loyal to your people. They're the ones where I find my delight. Right? That's verses 3 and 4. All, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. They're the one in whom I find my delight. Your people are my people. Right? That's what he says. I am, I am part of this thing. I have no other people, he says, but the, the saints. And that's a word you ought to know. New Testament and Old. Saints literally means holy ones. Those who are set apart for God. Those who belong to Him. And so he says, I have no other people than the saints. They are my people. Whatever ethnicity I have, whatever family I have, it's all secondary. Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and father, your brother and your sisters, you know, more than me, you know, you're not worthy of me. In other words, like you are my first family. Like you are the one to whom I belong before I belong to any other family even. My loyalty lies with you. And so he says, I delight in the saints. Those who share my confession that Yahweh is the Lord. They are my people. It's another way of saying Psalm 1 that we looked at a number of weeks ago. And the negative Psalm 1 says it this way. You know, that whole, uh, I will not walk in the counsel of the wicked. I will not stand in the way of sinners. That's negatively saying, I won't... I won't align with those people. I won't delight in those people. My delight is in the saints. Right? They're the excellent ones. Right? It's what Jesus says in John 13.35. All people will know that you are my disciples, that you belong to me if you have love for one another. So when you belong to Him, you belong to His people. And you know you belong to His people when those people become your people. One of the chief characteristics of belonging to God's people is a love and delight in His church. A love and a delight in His people. And he confesses his allegiance to Yahweh in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. I see that's the wrong way. They, their drink uh, offerings of blood I will not pour out. And I will not take their names on my lips. I, only Your name will cross my lips. In worship, as I live uh, all of this, I see the world around me worshiping other gods. We see it in so many ways. And what we would say is we're saying this, that people in our country who are running after all kinds of things, who would say praise and serve and love and give their life and their time and their energies and their resources to. And he says, I will not pour out my offerings over there. I will pour them out here and support the mission of God's church. You know, I will pour them out here. I, will, I won't pour myself out on behalf of all these things in the world which perish and fade away and do not last. I will give myself to you, O Lord, and what belongs to you. And on, your, on my lips will be your praise. And your praise only. I've made you my treasure. Right? Which is what he says next. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. It's an interesting thing. I think chosen portion makes some sense to you. In other words, of all the things that I could have, you know, if you were choosing a spouse, like I chose you, you're my chosen portion. Like you're the one for me. You know, it's that way. I have made the Lord my 
my chosen portion. Cup is a metaphor, you know, but it's for the same thing. It's a, you know, the, the cup that Jesus drank was basically His lot in life. It's what God had given Him to, to do. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's my lot. It's what He's given me. And He says, I've chosen you, O Lord, to be my portion. You are my cup. You know, I choose you to be, I'll, I'll drink you down lock, stock, and barrel. I take you. You hold my lot. You hold my life. We know sort of that's that you know lock stock, <clears throat> um, you know uh, you know a piece of property, a lot, a, a place where we own a certain within a certain boundary. You know the Lord is my lot. You're my parcel. You're that which I take is what I own. My inheritance. You're what I get in this life, so to speak. You hold my lot. That is to say, you hold my life. You hold my soul. You hold my destiny in your hands. My lot in life. You hold, you hold my lot. Whatever it is, you are my sovereign. The one who owns and holds my life in his hands. What David is saying in all of this as he is pouring out his soul is that the old spiritual, I know it through uh, Fernando Ortega, but it's an old spiritual that says you can have all this world. But give me Jesus. Right? And that's what David is saying. God, I have said, they can have all this world. Give me Yahweh. You are my lot, my hope, my portion, my sovereign, my refuge, my king. And he has this subtle shift then going from confessing these things, his faith and allegiance in God, to celebrating some of the blessings that come from belonging to him. The things that he, because he belongs to him, that he has confidence and experience of and celebrates in his life. And he moves from there and he says, Therefore, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And if you don't know that in Hebrew poetry, uh, you, can, you can see it in, in all the different kinds of poetry from the Psalms and Proverbs and a lot of uh, even the, the prophetic writings often fall into poetic structure. But there's a thing called parallelism. Well, they'll say something one way and then say it another way. They'll use different words, but basically to reiterate the same thing, to bring home the same truth. And so when he says things like this, like, you hold my lot, therefore, um, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Right? You hold my lot, so you drew the lines. You, know, you, can, you can see a picture here of, of Israel, and it's you know, taking the promised land and dividing it up amongst the 11 tribes, and everybody gets... It's because the 12th tribe didn't get land. They, were, they served the Lord in the temple. And anyway, so they divided up into 11, but God drew the lines and gave them their inheritance. And you can see Him saying, and this is the picture in His head, like, you hold my lot, and therefore the lines, you know, what you have drawn out for me and given to me as my inheritance has fallen in pleasant places. It's right. It's good. You have been good to me. You have dealt bountifully with your servant. The lines, the property lines. And so he says the next line is the same thing. He just says it another way. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places and deeds. You've given me a beautiful inheritance. At the center then as he moves forward, not only does the Lord have my lot and my inheritance in hand, he says, I've, um, <clears throat> I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, and I would see this is parallel, the same idea reiterated when his heart instructs me in the night that it is the Lord speaking to his heart and to his soul as he lays and reflects and God counsels him. 
So these are, these are parallel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. If you don't see this as one of the crowning jewels of your inheritance, this idea that the Almighty is your counselor, that He guides you, that He speaks into your life and gives you direction and helps you and speaks into your life on, on our relationships, right? And, and how to live our lives and who we are, this uh, counseling that God gives us, which really is His Word speaking into our lives, guiding our thoughts, guiding our words and our relationships and the way that we live. He guides us in the paths of righteousness. And when I am astray, the Lord comes as His counselor convicting me and telling me where I'm wrong and where I need to repent and get it right. It is God's grace and His kindness that leads us to repentance as He counsels us in our error. He guides us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And so in verse 8, He says, because I've chosen Yahweh as my God, I've set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Because Yahweh has taken hold in, of my life because He is with me. And I love this. It really is a startling statement because normally, who is it? The Lord's right hand is Jesus. And He is the King at whom people sit at the right hand. But this picture of because He is at my right hand. You don't hear that very often, the idea that he, he's, he's at my right hand. In other words, in this life, He is with me as my counselor, as my refuge. He is gracious to condescend to be with us, so to speak, uh, even though He is the Lord. But it says, because He is with me, my refuge, my counselor, my sovereign, I will not be shaken. I will stand. He will preserve me. Right? He's just been going through everything since He said, preserve me, O God, is all the ways and reasons why He knows that God will preserve Him. Because of who He is, His relationship with God, that God will indeed protect, care for, preserve, take Him home. And that's what the, he goes from here. We, we begin to see uh, <clears throat> that David's picture is not just for this life, but for eternity. He says, my heart will be glad and rejoice. My whole being is going to rejoice. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. My body be dissolved away forever and lost. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, beyond the grave, there is a fullness of joy. And at right your hand, there is pleasures, not just in time, but forevermore. Right? David's hope is not just in time, but for eternity. He believes the Lord will not let the grave win. He believes the Lord will not surrender him to the grave. That the grave won't be the end, but that God has plans for life. For hope. His confidence is that he will rise to victory over the grave. And if we have any doubt about that, I mean the interesting thing is we read so many of the Psalms and, we, and God writes and knits the whole of the Scripture together. If we have any doubt about David's hope here in the resurrection, we know even in the New Testament times of different factions, some believed in the resurrection and some didn't. Jesus shows up and settles some of the disputes and speaks, do you know the reality of the resurrection? God is the God of the living, not a God of the dead. And so, there, so this, this resurrection, we know that this is confirmed because in the New Testament, all of this is applied to the resurrection of Jesus. Right? That this speaks of Christ. 
David wrote the Psalms, but they speak of Christ. What the New Testament makes clear is much of what David wrote was not about David, but about Jesus. But it was that inspiration of soul that in some ways that he knew would be true about himself, he ultimately wrote about the coming Messiah King in Jesus. And so we see, you know, this is the case in verse 10 here. It says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That wasn't fulfilled first in David. Because David did die. And David did go to the grave. And the grave kept him. And his body did see corruption. And so we know that at least in an initial sense, it's not fulfilled in David. But it's fulfilled in the greater David. And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 31... Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is trying to explain this thing to his people, right? He says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried, and he's in his tomb to this very day, right? So this isn't about David. He died and was buried. He saw corruption. He's still in the grave. It's not about David. Being therefore a prophet though, David, knowing that God had sworn to him in an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ. In these very words of this psalm, that he was not abandoned to Hades, the Greek for Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was looking ahead and seeing the Messiah. He's looking ahead and seeing the one who would come. And says that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. That, does, that comes from 2 Samuel 7. It's another passage that says a similar thing. He says, though, when your days are fulfilled, David, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in the short run, we think of Solomon. Solomon showed up and he built a temple. He was the offspring of David that God raised up to David's throne. But the temple was destroyed and Solomon died and his kingdom perished. And this is not fulfilled in Solomon. The temple of Solomon was not the ultimate temple. Solomon was not the ultimate son that would reign. Israel was not the ultimate kingdom. The final king in the line of David that David looks down the road and sees as he prays these things is The final king in the line of David would be God Himself in the person of Christ. It is Jesus then who makes the rest of it true. He opens for us the path of life. In His presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? It is Jesus who does not see corruption, but who is raised from the dead and who opens the path of life for us, the way of eternal life through faith and trust in Him. That in His own body He bore our sins on the cross, that He might put an end to the guilt and the punishment that we are due, that He would represent us and die for us to put that away. And in His resurrection, He opens a path of life through the grave to the other side to the presence of God where there's Joy and pleasures forever. And so by faith and trust in Him, the greater Son of David, all of this comes to not just being true in time and in David's experience, but forever. And so it comes to us, if we've never put our trust in Christ, in David's greater Son, if we have never confessed, Yahweh, You are my 
Lord. And we haven't confessed, Jesus, You are my Lord. And bowed the knee to Him as our Lord and Savior. And trusted Him to open to you a path of life. I would encourage you not to let the day end without doing business with God. Giving your allegiance and your trust and your hope to Him. I've been waiting for that for a long time. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> there is something about how excited we get about football. But the things of Scripture, you know, they should excite us a little bit more. So thank you, brother. <clears throat> Our hope is in Christ. So this prayer is the prayer of David, but it's a prayer about Jesus. But let me end with these thoughts. That it's also our prayer. Right? That, that King David, in a sense, gives it to us in the Scripture. And the greater King, Jesus, gives the prayer to us. To own it for us. To lead us into prayer. It's This prayer is part of our spiritual inheritance. Our souls are richer as we know it and, and warm ourselves at the fire that we find in David's passion and his commitment and his love and his dedication and consecration to his God. And here then we should come to learn for ourselves to take that kind of content into our own prayer life. To our own relationship with God. So that it also gives us the same confidence that it gave David. He will preserve me. I will stand on that day. But we make His prayer our prayer. Part of our prayer life should be what I call consecration or dedication. I don't know if there are places in your life with God, in your, your life in prayer, when you have those quiet moments in the morning or in bed as you're going to bed or you take a moment at lunch and you're sitting under a tree somewhere or wherever it is, that in those moments where you are saying the kind of things that David is saying to his God, I say to you, Yahweh, you are my Lord. Right? You are my King. Right, you, I flee to you for my refuge. I trust in you. Right, your people are my people. And I know that there's a lot going on around me. God, help me to keep my heart so that I will not drink the offerings that they're pouring out or I won't pour out the offerings there. And your name is the only name that is praised in my soul. We would own these things. Lord, you are my chosen portion. Yahweh is always before me. Right? We take this on our lips. I love what he is saying there. It's one of those things that if we take even that one verse as a passionate, true thing for our own souls to say, I've set Yahweh always before me. And therefore, I will, because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What does it mean to set Yahweh always before us? Because the truth is, we don't get to set Yahweh anywhere. Right? Yahweh is not someone you set or you move or manipulate or move around. But what he is saying is that, that he's saying the same thing that Hebrews 12 says when, I, when he says, I fix my eyes on Jesus. Right? It's just saying it in the positive sense. I've set the Lord always before me. I fixed my eyes on Yahweh. Or in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Right? I've set my mind on the things on Yahweh. I fix my eyes on Jesus, on things that are above and not on the things of the earth. There's a determination here. There is a passion here. It's deliberate. It takes time to do this. 
I find that if I get to lunch and I haven't taken time to set my mind and my heart on things that are above, then generally I'm pretty lost during the day. You know, somewhere in there we need to do this. It takes a deliberate thing to have the kind of relationship with God that He is always before us. So that we know His presence. It's living in the conscious presence of God who is at our right hand and so we will not be shaken. Whatever may come. Do you live in this kind of conscious awareness of God's presence, of His reality in your life? Does it settle over your soul in a sense that you know He's with you? And because He's with you, you will stand. He will preserve you. Not only in time, but He makes known to us the path of life. When we take time with God like this, have a prayer life like this, take time to set our minds that are in things above like this, it gives shape to your life. It gives shape to your thought life. It gives shape to your speech, how we talk to each other. It gives space. When I've set Yahweh always before me, it will change the way I talk to you. Right? Because I want to honor and to please Him. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. But if I know I'm in His sight and He is in mine, it changes, it begins to give shape to the way we live. It gives shape to our marriages and the way we do marriage. It gives shape to the way that we work when He's at my right hand. Struggles will come. Suffering, pain, temptation. We're betrayed. We're disappointed. We're talked about. We're talked down. We're gossiped about. We're criticized. We are so many things that that come into our lives. And David says, I've set you always before me. You are with me all the time. And I will not be shaken. That's what Paul says in the end of Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? What can shake us? What can shake us loose? What can tear us away? Can angels or demons, can life or death, can sword or temptation or sorrow or famine or... And he says there is nothing in life, nothing in death. We will not be shaken. We'll end then with Jude 1.24. It's one of those uh, benedictions that I like to do. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from being shaken. right? Who is able to keep you from being torn away being separated to Him who is able to keep you from being shaken and is able to present you blameless before His presence in glory and in great joy. To our only God and Savior through Jesus Christ, be all glory, honor, and dominion. Pray with me. Father, we thank You that uh, You have given us glimpses into the souls of some of Your saints that we might light ourselves at their passion, that we might see their love for You, that we might taste of the the delight that they have in You and in Your people, of the glory of having You as our counselor, of the confidence of having You as our refuge, of the consecration of our souls as we commit ourselves to You and no other. To seek first Your kingdom. To love You first. So Father, I pray that this morning You will teach us to pray. That You will set our souls ablaze. 
that we would go forth and learn to come near to You and to pour out the desires of our soul in such a way that gives shape to everything. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.